For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to another Ripflix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is actor and now screenwriter and producer, Caroline Goodall. Hello. Hello, and thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here chatting to you uh, on Zoom. Indeed, indeed we are. The, the new normal continues. We're here to talk about your new film, The Bay of Silence, um, which you're in you wrote and uh, you produced. It stars Klaus Bang, Olga Kurylenko and Brian Cox, and it's directed yes. by the Oscar-nominated director... Paula van der Oost. The Bay of Silence is out now, because that's what will be the case by the time this podcast hits the airwaves. Yes, please download it. You can even buy it on DVD physically. I'm so excited about that. You can go to Tesco's or Sainsbury's or Asda. You know, you can even pick up a hard copy. It's fantastic. More radiant than ever. Oh, my God. Still spoiling her, Milton. I am in a position to help. Financially. I can look after us. Don't be too proud, Will. <laughs> I had twins, didn't I? Just one beautiful boy. No. I had twins again, that's all. I love the DVD. I truly do. Um, oh, I even collected the laser discs in the time when we still have a few. I've got the old cliffhanger laser disc and I've got Schindler's List. Um, I don't know what to do with them, but I think, you know, they'll they'll be collector's items soon. But uh, no, there's, there's something about having... It's like a library, isn't it? I just find it very hard having everything just at the click of a button and I've got a big screen and I can go to whichever, oh, I don't know, provider it is and scroll through. It just, it doesn't, I think maybe I'm a bit old, but I mean, it's useful. And I have to say, I have sort of, you know, done lots of binge watching during the lockdown. Uh, but um, I like to be able to, go to a shelf and go, oh, yeah, I'll get that one. Oh, I'll watch that one again, you know? You had to take my baby. He's great to me. Ross? He's great. Honey. She's not well. We know she's not well. Why are you looking at me like this? Let's start, for example, with you t you giving people a reason to watch The Bay of Silence. Do you want to give us a brief synopsis to what the film is all about? It's a tricky one, this one, uh, because because uh, you can't do spoilers, can you? But um, it is uh, what I would call a kind of Hitchcock-style 
thriller in the vein of Don't Look Now and The Vanishing, those wonderful thrillers that uh, certainly I was raised with and we still see as classics, which are cross-border. They're set in Britain and in Europe as well. And uh, it is about the sudden disappearance of Olga Kurilenko, who is Clay Spang's wife, and children and him on a frantic life back together. Um, when he finally locates them in a remote village in northern France, um, his relief turns to horror when he discovers that his baby son has mysteriously died. Um, unable to believe that his wife is culpable, Will secretly buries his son in the dead of night and flees France with the remnants of his family. But by bearing the truth to save Rosalind, his wife, Will now risks his own destruction. As the mystery behind his wife's actions start to take a darker, menacing form, Will sets out to discover the truth behind the death of his son and his wife's disappearance, no matter the cost. You have to get a grip. Girls! There's mommy. I'm being followed. No more games. We're not playing, Will. Is that what you want? Locked up in a nut house for the rest of your life? Now, this was adapted from um, 1986's novel, The Bay of Silence, by Lisa... Saint-Amand de Terrain. I was going to say, she's British. She's a British novelist, despite my inability to pronounce her name. I guess the first question... I mean, you've been the writer and producer of it. I guess the first question is, for a 1986 novel, why that novel and why now? Oh, my God. I think, you know, there are some... There are some stories that just stay with you. And this particular story stayed with me for years um, because the central dilemma, which is what do you do when possibly the worst thing has happened to you? And do you really know the person that you fell in love with? And, you know, how do you save both yourself and them is just one of those wonderful kind of classic uh, sort of impossible choices that, you know, kind of drama is about. Um, so for me, um, I was always really taken by that. Uh, also, um, I married an Italian. I live in Italy. I actually read the book, The Bay of Silence, in the Bay of Silence, which is a World Heritage Site in Liguria, uh, about, yeah, about an hour and a half from where, you know, we live. Um, and uh, I was also raised in London. Um, and spent a lot of my childhood in France. So a lot of this sort of European world really, really resonated with me. And it's one thing I do find in British films that we kind of get boxed. We're forced to, you know, it's either, you know, it's a war movie or it's a period piece where everyone's, you know, having hats and riding horses. Or, you know, it's sort of like, you know, low down edgy kind of gangster sort of brick gangster flick as it were um and we don't seem to make these slightly more what i would call sophisticated almost or certainly kind of open bordered and wider kind of films that you do see the french making and the germans making and um we had a tradition of that and um so i was just it just really spoke to me because 
a lot of that is also my experience. You know, I am an actor and I've just traveled a lot and I spend a lot of time in other countries and, you know, I know quite a lot of people too. We're a great traveling nation. We're the probably travel more than any other country in the world, you know. Um, we've always been great sailors and, and finding ourselves in different places. Um, and so that part of the story really appealed to me as well. Um, but it's deep down a love story um, and it's also a thriller. Um, and that was the story I wanted to tell. They're not easy to write um, and there's lots of twists and turns um, and people love mystery mystery thrillers yeah because it's it's very much it is it is it is obviously it is a thriller but it is the thriller of a broken heart isn't it in a way yeah it is it's a it's a story about a relationship um but it's also much deeper and it is touching on subjects that you know are coming more to the fore now whether you want to call it the me too movement uh so there is a sort of backstory about you know sexual trauma and abuse it's about power speaking truth to power is about how people manipulated but it's also in its heart it's about a man who is you know an ordinary man who finds himself in extraordinary circumstances which is a kind of classic sort of hitchcockian sort of thriller genre um, and there are lots of those tropes in there. You know, we've got the MacGuffin of the suitcase. We've got the mysterious woman. You've got the gothic house on the hill. Uh, we're playing a lot with all of those kind of tropes as well and visually um, how it was shot. Um, and, uh, you know, this was a movie made on a very small budget, but it looks amazing. It looks, you know, it looks really, really big. And we've got this extraordinary cast as well, including Brian Cox, of course. So if anyone's missing him from succession, <laughs> it's time. You can, you can catch him here. What for you were the main storytelling challenges, taking that source material and making it visual? The book actually is written from both points of view. And originally I... And I actually thought, wow, that would be great. Um, but um, it, in order to be a mystery, you have to kind of really see it through one person's eyes. And uh, because the, you know, the character of Rosalind is actually a kind of, you know, if, it, if you went through her eyes, you would have an unreliable witness because she's got mental health issues. Um, and this is not girl on a train. We're not messing with the audience's heads in that way, and it's not gone girl in that way either. Um, we don't want to mess with the audience's heads uh, because it's about something else. So um, we see it through the eyes of Will, uh, which is Clay Bang's character, who is this really upstanding kind of Jimmy Stewart kind of Cary Grant type guy, you know, like, uh, you know, the man who knew too much or, you know, South by South, you know, North by Northwest. Um, and he's thrown into a situation that he has to grapple with. And at first he, he just finds it way too challenging. And then he has to, you know, find his way. And the audience goes with him on that journey. And I like linear stories like that, where we unravel and find out at the same time as our main character. And you're not messing with the audience's heads. So I'm finding that happens a lot now in what one would call, I guess, I, I don't know, more modern cinema with, um, you know, multi-character points of view, which has come, I think, a lot from the fact that we're now very into long-form television. So they always have to think about, you know, how, 
we're going to have so many hours of storytelling and so we're going to have to see it from you know we have to set the story up you know in masses of different ways from different points of view and this is a film it's you know a film that you can hold in your head and that's why I love movies because we can still remember a film and talk about it because ultimately it is roughly 90 minutes to 120 minutes in length and our heads can encompass that as a three-act structure. And I know I slightly digressed, but um, those are the things that were interesting me. Uh, just thinking in terms of... Um like obviously a book is what 300 pages a film is like you say 90 to 120 minutes you can't get everything in the film that's in the book so in terms of adapting the book to film what were the challenges for you what you've said obviously the first thing you did was you've gone right let's see it from his point of view and let the story evolve from there so what did that mean in terms of as a writer sort of taking the novel into oh pretty much everything i mean i talked to lisa about it and uh... The book is quite contemplative. It is stream of consciousness um, and uh, it doesn't have a sort of, you know, it has a, a very calm kind of ending, a very, you know, a resolution. And so in a way, what I had, what I wanted to do was to, to make a story that came out of what, in a way, the bare bones of the book was, if that makes sense. And she completely agreed with me and she said, yes, turn it into a mystery thriller because the mystery's in there, but I'm telling it from the point of view of two people in their heads. And, uh, you know, you need action for a film. Uh, so I guess the uh, challenge uh, was actually making something fresh and new out of the same, same material that worked visually. Does that make sense? I think that's the same for every writer. I mean, you know, let's face it, most films are based on books. Most people don't realize that. They always come from some underlying material. Do you think about it? You've got movies that then have become books. You've got movies that have been turned into, you know, graphic novels. You know, Pan's Labyrinth, for example. My friend Cornelio Funke was approached by Guillermo del Toro to write the book of Pan's Labyrinth. And she actually said to him, I don't know how I can do that. To me, it's a perfect film. And he said, yes, but I really want to see it in prose somehow. And she said, because she's a fantasy writer, and she thinks in terms of fairy tales, she said, well, how about if, can I write some sort of interconnecting, almost fairy tales in between the chapters? And she said she remembers calling Guillermo up at one point and saying, I've been looking at the movie and there's this moment, you know, when you're, you know, the lead character, the bad guy's name, oh God, not Carlos. Uh, anyway, she says he's looking in the mirror and he's shaving himself and is he thinking this? And <laughs> she said a whole bunch of stuff. And Guillermo went, yes, that's exactly what he's thinking. Oh, wow. So what was, in what was interesting was that she was going backwards. So rather than having the character saying the thoughts on the book and then the screenwriter having to take it out and sort of say in three lines what the actor has to do and in a way make it an action, she was going the other way. And turning it into the thought process of him as he was staring in the mirror and going back into his childhood with his father. I think it's fascinating how how we we do this because there's obviously this faithful, there's respectful, there's you know there's the there's the Stanley Kubrick which is just literally take a, a drip a drop of it and then go and do what the hell you want. I think 
I think with the Bay of Silence, and I think anybody who sees this will completely understand and get it. For me, the hook was visual. It, it's a very, it's a very visually written book, but there's this, and she has, she writes such great description. But for me, it's that central moment when he is, uh, he arrives and he is walks across the beach and he sees the children, the twins beside the pram. And he start, starts to approach that pram. And there was something about that visual moment to me um, just resonated. And I kind of started there in a way, right in the middle. And sometimes people say they write the middle and they go backwards and forwards and other people use cards and you know they're very logical some people just have visual flashes and they just write the visual flashes and moments and then they kind of look at them and go okay so where would that go oh yeah so I think in a, in a way being also an actor writer when you're an actor and you're dissecting a script as well the script is also also a roadmap to a certain extent because you've got to place yourself inside that roadmap as a human being and living and breathing. So when you're reading a script, you're always looking for those markers as well, where you can then say, aha, that's, that's where I can, I really get that character and I can understand. And there's a moment of real vulnerability there. So if that moment of vulnerability or point of no return happens at the beginning of act two, therefore I've got to now go backwards into act one and see where I can place those key moments and little, you know, scraps of evidence as to who I am and how I'm going to get there. And it's sometimes not written, you see. So an, an actor will, will often have to find those subtextual moments, which, you know, might have been slightly highlighted by the writer, but aren't necessarily there. And I, I think in a way, that's the whole point about talking about whether it's booked or a script, is it's all when by the time you see it on the screen, it's gone through so many versions and everyone has written it. It's, it's everybody's version. So someone has to have the title screenwriter, I guess, just as someone has to have the title, you know, director or actor or, you know, makeup artist. But that's what I really love about the whole process as well. And having been fortunate enough to be doing it for 30 years is that, the longer I do it, the more I do see it as a team effort. And that is not just about, you know, saying, you know, being generous or anything. Of course, there is always one person who starts the ball rolling. But unless you've got a whole bunch of people who are going to pick up that ball and run with it with you, you're really on your own. Um, my great friend, Jim Hart, who wrote Hook, who is one of my mentors and Contact, which is actually one of my favorite films of all time. And, you know, Bram Stoker's Dracula, he always says no one gets a job until the writer types the end. And from that point of view, he's absolutely right. And I love the idea of writers being job providers because writers are often kind of seen as sort of slightly extraneous to the whole thing. <laughs> but, but weirdly, TV, it's the opposite, isn't it? It's kind of this, and obviously theatre, it's very much the opposite for the writer. Yeah, you know, TV with showrunners is completely different. Uh, one of my favourite showrunners is Emma Frost, who is the writer of The White Queen, uh, the White Queen and uh, The White Princess and The Spanish Princess, all these historical novels by Philippa Gregory. 
Um, but she was she's also been involved in in many many other things as well um and uh she you know you don't get many women production uh you know sort of showrunners writer showrunners for some reason um and uh you know it's starting to happen a bit more which is really great um but they they um it's really interesting, especially on the American end, because they're there all day. And I actually have a and, – and they're with you and they're rewriting. And um, I have a wonderful shot of one of our showrunners on Berlin Station. And we really were shooting, actually, at the train station. Um, and it was um, a scene between um, myself and um, uh, – the head of the CIA and we're trying to get on uh, Richard Jenkins, great actor, uh, on, a, on a train. And the showrunner stroke producer is sitting there and he's literally got his his MacBook on his knees and he's writing and rewriting and he's doing the next episode. Um, <laughs> it's, it's so interesting. And, uh, you know, that is... It's very fast, though. It's a very, very different medium. You have to, you have an army of people. You've got a writer's room, but generally you've got three or four people who are kind of pushing it through. But they know what that story's going to be for the next five years. When you're developing the script, what was your dialogue between you and Paula? What was that like? Was that, was that go away, write it, or was it that, here, Paula? make this film? The film had a really interesting gestation uh, in that um, I don't tick any boxes, particularly in terms of uh, kind of making movies. I've been really lucky that I've been in the business for a very long time and I do know people. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a woman of a certain age. It was a British film, but I also wanted it to be international film, commercial film. I mean, we've already been out in the United States for, you know, a month. We've sold all over the world. I packaged it as an independent film, which was a British film, um, you know, tax credits. And then we had, you know, Dutch uh, film fund because I had a Dutch um, filmmakers involved and in Italy as well with Italian producers. So um, from that point of view, with my producer's hat on, um, I the the way to kind of create value there is you either attach a name director or you attach artists. Um, it's very hard to get them all at the same time. Um, and it's very chicken and egg putting an indie film together. Unless you are blessed with, especially for the UK, that you are you can get money out of the BFI, you can get money out of um, BBC or Channel 4. They're the only three places you can go. And they have quite kind of tough directives about the people that they like to support and um, the movies. And, you know, they've got, you know, kind of like, you know, the bigger guys who tend to get all the money. And then you've got, you know, the people who they're kind of grooming from the beginning. And you've got someone like me who's kind of right bang in the middle of all that. So I saw very clearly that there was no way I was going to be getting money out of any of these funds. But in a way, that also gave me a lot of freedom because um, I was able to go away, raise money. I did it a bit in the American way as well. I got investors. Um, I went to the markets, did a business plan. Um, so it was based very, very much on the script, getting a sales agent off the script um, and lists of directors. It's not a good idea to attach a director until you really know who your value talent is. 
uh, unless you've got a direct, unless you've got a director who can sell your film for you, because then you've got a dead end. And uh, you know, directors, uh, it's hard to get a movie. Or you know, you can generally get a very very low budget movie off the ground with a first time director. It's very very hard for a, a, a first time, a second time director to ever get any money for a feature film, and uh, unless you, and then you know, there's those very established directors who've got a lot of awards, and they, you know, quite rightly demand to be paid a lot. So there was there was a lot of kind of backwards and forwardsing, and in the end, um, it's really about making sure that your film budget, that the story is really hitting people who want to put their money behind it. And then you literally have a list and you go through your list of people who everyone agrees are the kind of people who are right for the project. Um, so Paula came on board actually sort of towards, um, you know, we were getting, I, I'd met her uh, about a year or two previously and I'd shown her the script and she said, I'm quite busy. I like it, but I'm quite busy. And, uh, you know, who are you thinking of casting? And so then you go back again to who am I casting? <laughs> and it was when the casting came, it fell into place uh, with Olga Kurilanko, who really loved it. And we placed Bang, who just broke it out with the square. I always had Brian Cox. Um, who is just amazing. And he's like, you know, an actor magnet as well. You know, if you've got Brian in it, people say, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll be involved. Then I was able to go back to Paula and say, this is sort of how it's all coming together. What do you reckon? And she had a window of opportunity to make it. Everyone suddenly, you know, had a hole in their schedules. And we just literally laid down that date, which is, you know, June 4th, actually my brother's birthday. And we just had to go. We, you know, still had money to, to close and finance and all the rest of it. But you just kind of have to believe. You set that marker and you just sort of go. And everyone sort of starts pulling together. So in terms of us talking about the script, um, we did it really quite, you know, during sort of just a little bit of pre-prep and pre-production. So it wasn't a question of us having worked together on it over a number of years at all. Logistically, the story travels around Europe, yeah? In terms of the story. Yeah. So physically, did we? Did you take the production to all the places the story goes? We went to Italy. It was really, really important that we shot in the Bay of Silence, which is this World Her Heritage Site. It's really beautiful little bay uh, in a town called Sestri Levante, which is um, in sort of just at the beginning of Cinque Terre, uh, which is in Liguria, which is this, again, this kind of, you know, rather famous area. Uh, by the sea um, and it was really important that we got there and a lot of this is serendipitous I had uh, met um, a producer uh, Italian producer Fabio Canepa at um, uh, one of the markets I think it was Cannes or, or Berlin um, and we got talking and um, he said oh my god I come from there I was born there and he said, if you ever make this movie, you've got to come to me. Um, and, you know, he, he hadn't done much. He'd mainly sort of done commercials and bits and pieces. And he was young. Um, but I thought, wow, okay. And we stayed in touch. And uh, I have to say, the only time we could shoot was in the season. 
because of the availability of the actors. Because Clays was back-to-back with movies. He'd just finished Liabird. He was going on to Burnt Orange Heresy. Uh, Olga never stopped. She literally got off a, you know, uh, a commercial with Javier Bardem, I think, and came and joined us and then went straight on to something, you know, and Brian as well, you know, he just managed to fit us in in between, you know, sort of series two of succession. And so much is about people's schedules and no one's really thinking about the time of year that you might be shooting in uh, a place that's packed with tourists. And so my very British line producer said, well, we can only really do it between the 9th and the 13th of July. And I said, I don't think that's going to happen. How about um, can we do it towards the end of the shoot, uh, which was, you know, sort of moving into September? And um, no, 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 can't do that. And so I had to ring Fabio up and I said, is there any way that we can get hotel rooms in the height of the season? And can we get into the bay and can we shoot there? And can we get it quiet and silent with no people? You said you're out of your mind. Absolutely not. And I said, well, it's the only time we can come and that's it. And so they just kind of took a gulp and we went down and did a quick recce in June. And uh, I said, look, it's just four days. It's just four days. It's just, you know, let's just try and do this as best we can. And, you know, and we did. We managed it. And in fact, those beautiful, beautiful shots of them in the sea, which Paula needed so badly, which is so iconic. You know, the, if you'd looked at the other side of the bay, uh, we shot them all at Magic Hour. And if you've looked at the other side of the bay, you've got a whole bunch of people sitting on towels. And you managed to fit in a trip to Newcastle, I see, with the coming in and out of the Sage building. Well, yeah. Okay, so talking of where were you, where did you film? So we didn't go to France for Scot- uh, for for the French, but we went to the Scottish borders in Newcastle. And there's a story attached to that. One of it is that I was involved in this Newcastle Film Festival because I do believe really strongly that uh, we are too centralised with where we shoot and that we need to have far more film hubs. Um, and I got involved um, on sort of the board of that uh, quite early on. And I promised, I said, if I'm ever going to get this film done, I will come north, we will shoot north. And we actually shot in Newcastle. I did some rewriting so that we... Uh, he had a job that was in Newcastle. And we, in fact, we have a scene, which I'm in too, where we walk out the Sage Gateshead uh, as well. And there is the bridge in the background, uh, you know, as per my promise. But also we found a fantastic little village up, uh, you know, near Bournemouth, Ironmouth, and the, the Scottish borders. Um, that stood in for uh, Normandy because we needed a very remote little ribbon of a village clinging to rocks almost. Uh, And there's this extraordinary house in St. Abbs that really does sit on that cliff with the gulls wheeling around, which was wonderful because it was like something out of Hitchcock's The Birds. And it does have this sort of garden in the front and the sort of sheer drop the cliffs um and it's very kind of gothic and almost psycho land and at that point that is exactly the point 
in the story where Will is going down the rabbit hole and we're following him. And so visually, um, you know, it was quite, I thought, a really dramatic and courageous call for Paola and uh, her fantastic production designer, Harry Amelan, to make. Um, but it was great. Um, and it just really worked for the story. It looks really otherworldly. It really does look otherworldly. It does. It really does. Um, and, you know, we were able to dress it a bit so that, you know, it looks... Uh, all shuttered up and broken down. But actually, you know, if you look at photographs of Normandy and photographs of, you know, Scotland coast and the Irish coast as well, they're very similar because, of course, you know, the two coasts are really close. And, um, uh, well, certainly, you know, the island. Um, but also it's the same kind of, you know, these little seamen's cottages and, you know, whitewashed and everything. So uh, we were, I think, able to get away with it. And the issue of we'd already gone to Italy and, you know, it costs a lot of money to get a crew down there. And France is really, you need to shoot for at least two or three weeks in France in order to make it financially viable. Because with their their particular tax credit regime, you have to spend a million in order to get any tax credits. From what you've told me, though, I do like the idea that you were like literally showing us Newcastle. So it was recognisably Newcastle. And then you go an hour or so, an hour or so up the coast and then you're pretending you're in France. I love that. I love that idea of film. That's how we do it, isn't it? Beauty was we were actually able to go to Italy. That was what was super important for the Bay of Silence itself. I mean, you get the sense of the reverie of the place. I mean, I think that'd be hard to replicate, wouldn't it? Impossible. Yeah, the Bond asked me to. They said, oh, you don't have enough money to go. You're going to have to do it. And I said, where? And they said, Wales. <laughs> I said, I don't, you know, I'm not sure that there's a kind of Italian town that could look like that in Wales at all. Please give me a break. But also, actually, it costs a lot to go to Wales. Anyway, you've got to get everyone trains and cars and buses and God knows what else. You know, it's all about transfer. I mean, I think the hilarious thing about being a producer as well as a writer and an actor is after 30 years of doing all this, there is some, it's in my DNA that I just instinctively know what, whether something might work or might be production disaster because I've been involved in them. And they all think that actors, you know, we're just sort of, you know, we turn up on the day and we're, you know, we've got a trailer to change in and all the rest of it. But, you know, they forget we're, we're there in the mud as well with them, you know. Um, the amount of, of films I've been involved in where there's just been absolutely total production disasters and you're sitting there going I wonder how we're going to get out of this one you know it was kind of really nice to be able to use that experience um, and sometimes avoid a mess actually um, but it did it did have to be quite gentle about it because it was my first go round uh, as a producer and most people feel the producer should have come up through the ranks, you know, perhaps being an AD or, you know, come through something. But, you know, it was great. I kind of gained a lot of confidence. As it was your kind of first feature, your first feature film as a producer, and obviously given all your experience on many a film and TV set, what, what, what being in that position for this film, being in the producer's seat for it, what's the most valuable lesson Bay of Silence has taught you? 
The most valuable lesson is it's about tenacity. A produ- I mean, I've been really lucky. I've had great producer mentors. I mean, goodness me, my fir- the first, you know, kind of major producer I ever met was Kathy Kennedy uh, on the set of Hook. Steven Spielberg, of course, he is a producer. Um, but those are very different kinds of films because they're so enormous and there's so many people involved. I really do think it's it's... I would wake up every single morning feeling sick because every single day there is a fire to put out or something that happens that you uh, would happen. Um, whether it's a freak typhoon, whether it's someone's father dying, whether it's some something being sick, it, whether it's it's a small bit of a you know equipment that hasn't turned up, whether it's you know it's everything and anything, um, and. I think it's about taking the long view. Um, and also, I really think it's about attention to detail and just being on top of it constantly. And I think I did have an idea that, you know, because I'm a creative producer as well, because I'd written it and I had found, I, you know, I had packaged it properly like a proper producer, you know, that kind of, uh, you know, it, independent film financing, which I don't even know if we can do anymore, but, you know, 30% pre-sales, you know, 30% soft money, which is, you know, tax credits and, uh, you know, your um, grant funding. And then, of course, you know, 30% investment and 10% gap. You know, that is kind of the um, the kind of way you're supposed to do it. Um, and I managed all that. Um and uh, then I thought, well, I'll just, you know, I've hired people to, you know, do the nuts and bolts and I can just sort of sit back and, you know, it'll be really nice. And, you know, I'll make sure the actors are happy because, you know, I'm an artist. Um, and, you know, that's the important thing is that they feel good. <laughs> then you realise there's just so much else. Um, and, uh, you know, that there isn't someone behind your shoulder who you could turn around to and say, um, was that right? Uh, it's all good, right? Because you suddenly realise that everyone, everyone's coming to you. Even though you've got a line producer and you've got a physical producer, you're hiring them. So ultimately, the, the person who has um, the 100% stake in it actually was me, the producer, because... Um, Everybody else at some point is going to walk away. You know, I am still here. I'm here now marketing it. You know, I'm there to a bitter end. But what's also wonderful is I had the chance to go through post-production. I had the chance to, you know, we had a wonderful composer who had a heart attack. So we had to find another composer, um, who John Swihart, who's absolutely amazing. Uh, you know, these things happen, but, the, the, you know, we had very short period of time to do that there are just so many things that happen and then you just wake up with it every single day and it doesn't stop and it keeps going and my great friend Andy Patterson who's a wonderful British producer you know who did Gold Pearl Earring and The Railway Man he just says are you prepared to just follow this through for years <laughs> for no money for no thanks and, you know, that's the other great thing is that the producers are, tr you know, traditionally the ones who don't get invited anywhere when 
things get handed out, you know, up goes everybody else. Like, and, it, and it is what's fantastic, though, about it is none of that matters because you actually have that feeling of being there right at the beginning and taking it through all the way to the end. Possibly as an actor, that was maybe for me the bit that was missing, was that you sort of come in, you do your bit, and you go. And of course, you're completely committed to that project, but then you've moved on to another one. I think that's why, you know, my husband is a cinematographer and he started off as a camera operator. And I remember him saying to me, it's not enough. I want to be there at the beginning with the vision of the piece and be there at the end. So he became a cinematographer and he's Terry Gilliam's cinematographer. And they've collaborated now on, you know, ever since Fear and Loathing in 1995. I do think that we all, and I'm sure you do too, then, or anyone who's kind enough to listen, it's not that we have ambition. It's just that we get to certain points in our life where we say, I think I just feel that I can do a bit more here. I want to be a bit more involved. It's not having our name on it necessarily. It's just sort of understanding it on a deeper level. There really isn't a crime in evolving, is there? I mean, and for you to, for the amount of sets, for the amount of sets you've been on, to not be curious would be, would be, would be weird anyway, wouldn't it? You know, the idea that you're seeing all these other things happening and wondering how it comes together, then to want to lead that yourself, that seems to me perfectly, perfectly logical. Yeah, yeah, I think it is logical. And we witness that. And I, I think we are coming into a great place, actually, because of, in a way, the digital revolution and the fact that, um, you know, anybody can pick up a camera now, that, you know, the walls are falling down between the creators and the financiers and a lot more, and I would call us artists, if you want to, you know, whether we are directors, whether we're writers, whether we're actors, a lot more actors, if you want to call them that, are producing. And traditionally, it's always been seen as, oh, it's a vanity thing. You know, they've got their shingle and, uh, you know, it's Reese Witherspoon and, you know, and, you know, because she can get it up. But Reese Witherspoon really does produce. And there are certainly people who really do produce. Uh, Tom Hanks really produces, you know, Rita Wilson really produces. And, uh, uh, you know, we're finding this happening more and more in the UK as well. And I really think it's great. You know, um, Noel Clark, Ashley Walters, I did Bulletproof with them. They really produce and they starred and they write and they sell and distribute and they, are, they never start working. Um, and I think Charlie Chaplin was a writer, producer, director, founded Hollywood along with. So in a way, I think it's great, and I don't like the boxes that we get put in particularly. And I have been asked really strange questions like, oh, so now you're producing or you're writing. So how does that feel now you're not acting anymore? And I said, what do you mean, I said, what do you mean I'm not acting anymore? And I said, actually, I've actually made last year while I was producing this, I actually made three television series and two films. And they go, what? 
I said, well, yeah, because I still have the day job because basically being a producer, especially on a film like this, you're not earning any money because everything that you are supposed to earn has gone in the contingency because one fine day someone came up to me and said, so what do you reckon? Do you think we should keep the 20 extras for a bit longer? And you go, well, yes, if, if, if we need them, absolutely. And then you realize that's coming out of your fee. <laughs> You know, oh, we have a cash flow issue. We've got, oh, a currency exchange shortfall. Yeah, okay. That's coming out of your fee. So <laughs> we can't go to Italy. Unless, I mean, that's how it works, which no one, you know, everyone thinks that, you know, producers make a bunch of money. But inevitably, in the movie business, if, you know, the producer's the one that actually pays if something goes wrong and you got no more and there's no contingency left because the bond is there to ensure the film and to make sure that it gets finished um but if you've got a creative decision like you need an extra day the bond ain't paying for that so let's remind people then bay of silence is out now on dvd and on um and on vod and it just gives me to say thank you very much for giving us your time on the britflix podcast For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done.